You're listening to the Mind Your Home Podcast. I'm your host, Mia Danielle, and I'm here to tell you that the number one thing you can optimize to give you more energy and happiness is your environment. If you're tired of the chaotic cycle and ready to feel energized at home with more simplicity, more energy, and less clutter, then welcome to the Mind Your Home Podcast. I recently had the opportunity to chat with Josh and Ryan, also known on their very popular podcast, as well as their two Netflix docuseries as The Minimalists. But instead of talking about their journey to living with less, I was a little more curious about their take on finances, about how to find and achieve and maintain financial health. Both of these guys came from having six-figure-plus jobs to letting go of everything, decreasing their income by like 90%, and then getting rid of tons of debt. These are two guys who have seen both sides of the coin, so to speak. Obviously, there are a ton of things more important in life than money, but there's just no getting around the fact that for most of us, financial independence is something that we're striving toward because of all of the things that come with it, like freedom and less stress and fewer sleepless nights, just knowing that everything is taken care of because you have that financial health. So I noticed in your article, you talked about the importance of paying for your future. What does that look like for you? Can you explain a little more about that? Yeah, I think what we tend to do is we borrow from our future. Quite often we want something, but we forsake the thing we truly want to get what we want right now, to get what we want in the moment, that impulse. We see it at the grocery store. It's really easy. We call them impulse purchases, right? Because I'll be at the checkout line all of a sudden, oh, there's a candy bar. I didn't know that I wanted a candy bar, but now I can't imagine leaving the store without the candy bar. But then we do that with much larger purchases as well. We go into debt to finance a vehicle. Well, if I can't afford to pay for the actual vehicle, then I can't afford it. Just because I can afford a payment for something, that literally means I can't afford to pay for the entire thing. And The problem with that is we're making a decision today that doesn't really affect us today. Well, it affects us positively. Oh, I get that dopamine rush of the purchase. But then what happens? Well, the bill shows up in the mail and I have to pay that first car payment and the second car payment and the 45th car payment and the 82nd car payment. And now people are spending more than $700 a month to buy a car to drive them to work so they can afford to pay for the car, to drive them to work. And we become tethered to a lifestyle. And it doesn't just end with the car. It's our houses. It's our clothing now that we finance. Oh, four simple payments. I'll buy it right now. And I don't have to pay for it until June and July and August and September. So my future self is suffering for the decisions that I make today. Yeah, I I know for me, um, man, back, I don't know, in my mid-20s when I finally had a decent credit credit score and I could I could borrow money every time I got a raise it was all about um what kind of payment could I afford now what what uh what how much could I put my rent or my mortgage up to how much can I put my my car payment up to it was never about paying for my future and and planning for uh retirement or anything like that because of what Josh was talking about those impulse purchases I mean when you look at the average American, um, they, they carry four credit cards in their wallet. And one in 10 of us has 10 or more active credit cards. And the average credit card debt is over $16,000, which just blows my mind. I mean, and it kind of gets worse. Uh, you know, even before the uh, pandemic, over 80% of us were in debt, 
with uh, the total consumer debt greater than $14 trillion. So when Josh and I talk about paying for your future, really, yes, we're trying to help people avoid borrowing from their future. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I got into minimalism is because my finances were out of control, which which meant my time was out of control because I had to work so much to uh, pay for all those debts that I had incurred. And yeah, I'm really glad I found this type of lifestyle to kind of really help me get clear on what my priorities were and, and what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah, definitely. I know it's hugely, it's been hugely beneficial in my life as well. And when you talked about, you know, not just stealing from your future, but actually investing in your future, you know, you guys used an example in the article of like specific things that you you put your money into four different buckets as far as investing into your future. And you use things that will automatically finance those buckets or pull the money for those buckets so that you're not having to sit there and micromanage everything. Have you found that that is a lot easier in order to really plan and prepare for your future to have these automations in check? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to automatically taking money out of the account, yes, that certainly makes it easier because you don't have to think about it. But you know, before anyone sets up taking any money out of their accounts to save away or uh, auto pay on bills, the, the most important thing is to really get a budget together. And that's where it starts. So for me and, and my wife, uh, we keep a regular budget. Um, we use an app called Every Dollar. There's a ton of free apps out there. That's just our our preferred app. It's it's free. There is a paid version. I like the free version because it makes you do a little bit more work, which creates a little bit more friction when you want to go to the store and buy something. But once we have our dollars allocated for, yes, we make sure that those uh, payments, uh, the, those savings uh, payments really, um, that we have scheduled each month are accounted for. And yes, we don't have to think about it. It's already out of our budget. And if we use that budget for our finances, like the Bible, during the month, we usually end up winning at the end of the month. Quite often what happens is we get stuck making these bad decisions because they become habitual and we don't realize that, oh, I've just, I've forsaken this value of mine. I've forsaken that value of mine. And before I know it, all of these tiny micro bad decisions, they add up to something terrible. A lot of disease and dysfunction in our health, but also a lot of dysfunction in our finances. The opposite is also true for the good habits that we form. And that really happens through automating, whether we're automating our giving, we're automating our savings, we can automate the bills that we have as well. Although we, a uh, little caveat there, we have to be careful around that because it's really easy to put our bills on autopilot and then we're paying for 12 different streaming services, or we're paying for a bunch of things we're not paying attention to. And so automating your savings is important because what you're really doing is you're setting it so you never have to think about it in the future. You can review it periodically. I know with my own retirement accounts, I go in once a year. Why do I do that? Because I don't want to panic. I don't go in every week or every month and, oh, the stock market's down. What should I do? I'm going to panic. Well, I know that I don't plan on retiring anytime soon, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to worry about that right now. And even worse, let's say I go in there and the stock market's way up, and now all of a sudden I start making a bunch of changes that are going to affect my future that would really mess with the automation I've already set up. So I'll go in once a year and take a look at it, rebalance things if necessary. But the thing that I've found is automating it allows us to Set it aside because a lot of our financial clutter creates a lot of mental clutter in our lives. Not only do we worry about money, 
We worry about purchases. We worry about spending. We worry about income. But all of those things lead to this psychological, this mental, and then ultimately this emotional clutter. Yes, there are the zeros and ones of money, the basic financial principles. But the thing that really gets us into trouble is how we feel about money. And automating our finances quite often helps us so that we're not so tied to the emotion of money. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I feel like our perception of money, and actually that was something I was going to talk to you about. This is probably a good segue for it. How important, and I know you just mentioned a little bit about our perception of our wealth. And you specifically were talking about in one of the articles that I read, how contributing is beneficial because you get to see how other people, you know, like yourself in comparison to the grander scale of the world. Like we have here in America, especially so much more than so many other places. And I think, you know, sometimes getting that perception a little more dialed in can help you to not only be grateful for what you have, but also make better money decisions. So what are your thoughts about that, the whole contributing factor uh, and, you know, getting a better perception of your wealth? You know, it's true that giving is living and there are a bunch of apothems that are similar to that. We understand that we want to contribute beyond ourselves in a meaningful way, but then we tell ourselves this story. It's called someday. And we all get someday-itis. I will give Someday, I will contribute beyond myself. Someday, I will help others. Someday, I will be charitable. Someday. And then we even make this imaginary number in our head. As soon as I'm a millionaire, that's when I'll give. Or as soon as I'm financially free, that is when I will help other people. And that sounds like a really nice narrative. But if we're always waiting for someday, someday never arrives. I'll tell you, Ryan and I grew up really poor and we thought the reason we were so unhappy when we were growing up is we didn't have any money. And so when we were in our late teens and early 20s, we joined the corporate world, we climbed the corporate ladder, and we had a lot of corporate success. But strangely, I felt more financially insecure as I made more money. Why is that? Well, it has to do with the story we tell ourselves about money. Eventually, at age 30, I walked away from the corporate world and I took a 90% pay cut that first year, 90%. I made $23,000 in 2011. And strangely, I was more financially free that year. And I also contributed more financially and outside of finances as well that year than I had the previous decade. Now, why is that? Well, it has to do with the story that I told myself about money. There, No matter how much money I make, if I'm not generous when I'm making $23,000. The truth is I'm not going to be generous if I'm making $230,000 or if I'm making $2.3 million or if I'm a billionaire, I'm not going to be generous if I'm not prepared to be generous as soon as I have any resources. If I have the ability to contribute to other people, and part of that's financial, but part of it has to do with the other resources we have as well. Our time, our attention, our energy, our skills can all be great ways to contribute to other people and to add meaning to their lives. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to money, money's a tool and a tool is as useful as its user. And unfortunately, my 25-year-old self really thought that money was going to buy me happiness. And what I have learned the very hard way is that it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how, how much stuff you own. Happiness does not start uh, with external things. And now that we have a different perspective on that tool, 
as Josh mentioned, like we, we do get this amazing opportunity to contribute beyond ourselves in a meaningful way. And we've done that with digging wells and countries that needed fresh water. We've provided supplies to high schools that, that were in need of some funds to uh, provide some things for their students. We built a uh, food co-op in one of the, the largest food deserts over in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So we've really been able to, you know, kind of each year pick something that we've kind of been able to give back to. And it feels real good. And not only that, we get our audience involved and it makes them feel really good too. I mean, that sounds awesome. I totally agree. We tend to always rely on, you know, I don't have enough money now, but whenever I have more or whenever I'm making six figures or seven figures, then I'll be able to give back. And it really is just more of a, a mindset and even a habit sometimes, you know, you go to the restaurant and how you tip is often habitual, how much you give. I don't know if you've heard of like paying yourself first is something that a lot of financial people talk about. Is that something that you feel like you do when you're budgeting? Do you make sure that you pay yourself first in order to manage all of those bills? Like Joshua was talking about earlier, you got to be careful about automating the bills because then you're just paying all of these things. Is that something you've ever practiced or considered? Yeah, I pay my future self first. And what I mean by that is before I'm spending money on the things that I want to buy, I'm making sure that I'm taking care of my essentials. Now, part of that is you have to have a roof over your head. You have to have food, basic clothing, transportation, things like that, the, the basic essentials. But one thing that's also essential for me is saving for the future. And so it's paying my future self first before I well, before I'm interested in in buying something that might add value to my life, but it's non-essential. And of course, I completely cut out the junk as well. Ryan and I have something we call the no junk rule. And this applies to our material possessions, but I think it also applies to our finances. Uh, this is how it works, basically. Everything you own can fit in one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential, but value adding, or it's junk. The essential things are what I just mentioned. Food, clothing, shelter, education, transportation, vocation, right? But then beyond that, we have non-essential things that add value to our lives. And if I can afford those things, they amplify my life, they enhance my experience of life, that's wonderful. We are the minimalists. We're not deprivationists. We enjoy having some things that add value to our lives. But if I can't afford it, well, that's a different story. I can live without those things. Unfortunately. Most of the things we own and most of the things that we spend money on, they actually belong in that third category. It's junk. It doesn't mean that it's not valuable to someone else, but quite often we make purchases or we spend money we don't have on things because other people in society told us we need it or we think we can impress other people by buying those things. Yeah, and, and just going back to that budget, every single month there's a line item where my wife and I will budget for giving. So it is something that we put you know, and plan for in our budget every single month. Uh, and it's different every month, but certainly it is something that, uh, yeah, I, th I think everyone knows that old apothem that we've mentioned. Giving is living. How, do, like logistically, how do you stick to a budget? Okay, so I know that a lot of people may create budgets. They may even, like I have Mint, and so it breaks everything down into a graph so I can keep a close tap on it. But when you're shopping on Amazon, you're scrolling through, you know, you're shopping at the grocery store. How do you, in the moment, know when you're overstretching? Like, do you legitimately have a, a notification that comes whenever you're within $50? Like, whoa, you can't spend any more in this category. How do you stay on top of those things? Yeah. So it, it takes a little bit to get the the right amounts down, I guess. I mean, we specifically have like a household item in our budget. So that could be Amazon, that could be Target, 
that could be uh, CVS. It's anything that we buy on a regular basis, you know, shampoo, toothpaste, toilet paper, which by the way is minimalist. It's like we don't just buy, you know, toilet paper one square at a time or one paper towel at a time. So we, we do certainly buy those things uh, on a, you know, as, on a regular, semi-regular basis. And it might take a little bit of time to figure out exactly what those costs are each month. My wife and I took us about two months to really kind of uh, get clear on what we were doing. And then we've got this other little category, which um, is kind of a hack. I was going to say a cheat, but I think it's more of a hack than a cheat. Uh, we have a little miscellaneous bucket. So um, what anything we have left over from the end of the month, we will put in savings, but we might actually carry a little bit over into that miscellaneous bucket and build that up. So when we do go over a bucket with certain things, uh, we might um, pull from there to kind of cover those extra costs. But even when it comes to like traveling or uh, when it comes to savings, when it comes to retirement, all of those things, my wife and I are putting something in all of those accounts every single month. It's not the same every month because uh, things are, are different. But um, if you are, you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it for sure. And I'll tell you that I have two financial rules that really help me avoid going over my budget. The first one is called the wait for it rule. Ryan and I also call it the 30-30 rule. And here's how it works. If I'm going to buy something that costs more than $30, I wait at least 30 hours. Now, why do I do that? It's true that I could afford the $30 right now. Why not go ahead and buy it right now? It's really inconvenient to wait an entire day to buy this $30 item. Well, I do it because much of the time, I don't actually go back and buy it. I realize it was just an impulse purchase. And so to stave off impulse, what I've decided to do is wait for it. Unless I absolutely have to have it right now for an emergency, I am going to wait for it. I'm just gonna wait 30 hours. Now, if the thing costs more than $100, I try to wait 30 days. Now, sometimes it'll be a little bit shorter than that, but ultimately having these rules set up allow me to avoid going over my budget and also allow me to avoid impulse purchases. Another rule that I have is whenever I go to the grocery store, I buy only the items that are on my grocery list, even if I forgot to put it on there. So Let's say I really wanted to buy blueberries. I meant to put it on my grocery list, but now I'm here at the grocery store and I see these delicious blueberries. I can't wait to put them in my car. Oh, wait a minute. They're not on my list. Then they're not going home with me. Now, why do I do that? It's incredibly inconvenient, right? Well, the truth is we've removed all the inconvenience from our lives. It's similar to removing all of the friction from your life, which sounds great until you realize that without any friction, you lose traction. Imagine driving your car on a really icy road. There's no friction, but you can't get where you're going if you don't have a little bit of traction. Now, y'all talked about in the same article, involving everyone, even the kids in creating these budgets. I doubt that many people out there do that would like bring the kids in and be like, okay, kids, we're going to sit down and make a budget. How does that look on, you know, on the ground level when you actually have those conversations with your kids? What kinds of things are you discussing and how are you bringing it up? So with my daughter, she's nine years old. We use something, we have a basic envelope system. Our friend, Rachel Cruz, she came up with this. It's an envelope system for kids. And basically my daughter has three envelopes. Whenever she earns money, she started her own business this year. It's a dog walking business. It's called uh, Paul's P-A-W-S, pretty awesome walking service. And every time she makes five bucks for 
walking a dog, what she'll do is we'll sit down with her and we divvy that money up into three categories. You have save, you have spend, and you have give. And what it's doing is it's building up that muscle. You realize that, yes, I made $5 and I get to spend $2 on whatever I want. But then also I'm going to save $2, but knowing what you're saving it for as well. My daughter's saving up for a horse, so I think it's going to take her a while. But every time she walks a dog, she knows she's saving for something. And now because she's beginning to learn how to postpone the gratification, she'll often put some of her spend money into the save envelope as well, because she really wants to get that horse. And then the third envelope, which is a little bit more difficult, especially for a nine-year-old is, hey, this isn't my money. It's someone else's money. I'm going to give this to someone who needs it more than me. So, you know, we've talked a lot about delayed gratification, and I know that that is, you know, that's huge in order to be able to plan for any of the goals that you have. But when we talk about, you know, investing our money, paying yourself, your future self, I know that most people who aren't investing, which is probably most people are not investing in their future and their retirement are thinking, well, I can use that money now. You know, I can take a vacation, a big lavish vacation now while I'm young enough to be able to enjoy it versus waiting until I'm 70 years old and may not be able to have the same experience. So what do you say to things like that? And is there a reason that you invest so heavily in your future? Like, are you hoping to retire early? Do you have some main vision of yourself whenever that time actually comes that you're receiving those dividends? I think there's a lot of binary thinking thinking that goes on with this, right? It's like, I can either go on a vacation a really lavish, awesome, expensive, extravagant vacation, or I can save in a boring fashion for the future, right? But the truth is, we can often do both through budgeting appropriately. Unfortunately, most of the things that we spend our money on don't follow and fall into either one of those categories. We're often spending money on things that we don't need, money from the future, we're borrowing against our future to buy those things to impress a bunch of people we either don't like or we don't even know at all. And quite often we can cut those costs out and that's how we find money for the vacation we want to take. But I always get to the why behind any of this, whether I'm saving money for retirement or I want to go on a vacation. Okay, why do I wanna go on vacation? Oh, because I really, I need to relax. I'm really stressed out. Oh, well, that's different. That's a different problem because the vacation isn't going to solve my stress problems, right? It may temporarily relieve them, but that's like putting an ointment on a much greater problem. Oh, I have a lot of anxiety and I just need to get away from the office. Oh, but it sounds like the office is actually creating the anxiety or my expectations of the office and my coworkers and my bosses are creating all this tension in my life. And so really getting behind the why of doing what I'm doing helps me better understand. And then of course, if I wanna spend money on a vacation, certainly nothing wrong with that. I can have a wonderful experience. Usually it's way less expensive than we think, but I can also save for my future at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's too often we like pigeonhole ourselves in that binary thinking because we're like, yeah, you know, we only live once and I can either take this lavish vacation or I can plan for the future. And I used to do this to myself where it's like, well, I only live once, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. But really like that is just giving myself permission to make bad decisions. Like now when I think about how I go on vacations, it's certainly not lavish, but I can still travel places because again, we plan for that and put money away each month. It comes down to priorities. If someone's priority is to live 
as fast as they can while they're as young as they'll ever be, and that's their true priority, then I say go for it. I think for me, my priorities have just changed over the last 13 years, and I'm, I'm able to get more leverage when I think about making choices like that. I mean, there's a community out there, the FIRE community, Financial Independence Retire Early is what that acronym stands for. So that's also a priority for some people. And if people want to do that, they can go check out that community and figure out how they can retire at an early age. Dave Ramsey has his own approach, Rice and Beans approach. You've got Ramit Sethi. He wrote the book, I Will Make You Rich. And he talks about like really getting clear on what you want to do with your money and where you want to really enrich your life. And then those other areas, those junk categories that we don't pay much attention to, to uh, you know pay close attention to those. So there are many different ways to do that. I think number one, though, uh, people have to get clear on what their priorities are, and that will kind of guide them to which methods they want to use in their life. Very true. Do you think that not really, I, I don't know, I think that not knowing how money works is what holds people back a lot of times from just making smart decisions with their finances and even taking the time to create a budget and all of these different investment buckets and things you were talking about. How impactful was it to you to decrease that knowledge deficit or to increase your financial intelligence? Like, do you remember a point in time, maybe when you sold your big house and you were really like pairing down to the basics and the minimal where you learned more about how to earn wealth for yourself. Yeah, I I think for me, the biggest light bulb moment with finances was at the end of my packing party. So to sum it up, that's where I began my minimalist journey, where Josh and I, we literally packed up everything in my house. We pretended like I was moving. And then over the next three weeks, I unpacked things as I needed it. And at the end of those three weeks, 80% of my stuff was still sitting in those boxes. And I remember looking at those boxes, like first off, couldn't remember what was the most of them. And then I started to think about what my priorities were. And if you would have asked me before that packing party, like, hey, Ryan, what are your priorities? One of them most certainly would have been, oh, I want to retire early. But I was in a copious amount of debt. And I was looking directly at where all my money was going. And I had this realization of, oh, like that might be a priority that I give lip service to, but I'm not doing anything towards that goal. And I kind of realized that our priorities aren't what we say they are. It's, it's what we actually do with our time. And so looking at that 80% of stuff in my boxes, I just realized like all those things that I had purchased that I had not thought about, how much it added up, how much of that I actually could have probably not purchased and put into a, a savings account or a retirement account. And uh, yeah, that's where I really started to just reprioritize my time so I could actually uh, take some actions and some steps towards what my my priorities were. Yeah, Mia, you know, what's fascinating is we have too much information right now. We're bogged down with information clutter. And I noticed this when I first started simplifying my life. For me, it started with my material possessions, but I didn't know where to start. I was so overwhelmed. And I think that holds true and maybe even more true with our finances. We sort of just throw our hands up because it's scary. I'm never going to be able to save for retirement. I'm never going to be able to buy a house. I'm never going to have a savings account with a meaningful amount of money in it. I'll never have a fully funded emergency fund. I'll never get out of debt. And so I'm so overwhelmed by all of these things. I don't even know where to start. And so what happens? I don't start. In fact, I do the opposite. I heap on more debt. I postpone the retirement decisions that I need to make right now. But what I've realized is I don't need to do a whole lot of things. If I automate my finances in a way where 15% is constantly going to my retirement accounts and really boring traditional index funds, I don't buy individual stocks, I don't buy commodities, and I don't worry about it. Every single paycheck, 15% goes toward my retirement and that's it. 
I don't have to worry about it anymore. And the truth is that if we're doing that, I don't have to take any big actions. I don't need a whole bunch of new information in order to make these decisions because the decision is already made for me. I don't have to suffer from decision fatigue because, well, I'm not worrying about it every single month. Yeah, it's much, I guess, simplifying the process and keeping it down to the basics. So you're not necessarily worried about things like assets or creating multiple streams of income or some of these more extraneous methods of accumulating wealth? Great question. So when I was in debt, yes, I was worried about increasing my income. Why? So I could get out of that crater of debt. And so I was working in the corporate world. I was making really good money, but I spent even better money. And so I was broke. I looked ostensibly well off because I had a really nice car. Actually, I had several nice cars and a really big house in the suburbs. And I had the fancy suits and the fancy shoes and the fancy necktie and the cufflinks and a really expensive watch, all of which I bought on credit. Ryan earlier told you that the average American has four credit cards in their wallet and one in 10 of us has 10 or more active credit cards. I was one of those people. Actually, I had 14 active credit cards because I'd be dumb not to sign up for this thing because I'm going to get 15% off of this Banana Republic shirt. And then all of a sudden what happens? I've got this credit card. It must be free money. And so I'd keep using it until I maxed it out and I get another card and I'd max that out. Before I knew it, I had credit card debt here, 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 and here. And it just permeated every area of my life. And when I knew I wanted to get out of debt, I knew it because I wanted to be free. I no longer wanted to be tethered to this lifestyle. And so I figured out, okay, how do I make more money right now? Well, the first thing I had to do was obviously reduce my expenses, get down to what was truly essential, get rid of the cars, get rid of the car payment, have a car that you can actually afford, live in a house that I could actually afford to live in that would cost me less so I could dedicate every dollar that I was saving toward that debt. But also, I needed to make more money. And so I sold everything that wasn't tied down, and I began getting rid of the excess. That was really helpful for the minimalist thing, but it was also great because any extra dollars I made, what I do with it? I put it toward my debt. But then also, even though I was working a suit and tie job in the corporate world, I started delivering pizzas on the evenings and weekends. I knew that wasn't a long-term solution. This was before they had Uber or DoorDash. Those would have been great options for me as well because I knew I needed to create a little more pain in my life so I'd never go back into debt again. And I've been debt-free now for 10 years. And I can tell you this, I will never, ever go back into debt. Nice. Yeah. It sounds like there are really two parts of it or two sections, right? There's the getting out of debt section, which sometimes requires maybe even a little bit of, of cutting back, if not deprivation, like you guys went pretty serious with getting rid of everything when you were in the process of getting out of debt, you sold your big house, went back to renting a small place, you know, like all of these changes were made. And then there's like, once you are stable, then there's another piece of the pie, which is to maintain that stability, to make sure that you're not losing all of the progress that you've made and maybe even accumulating a little wealth, especially for your future self, in the process. I mean, is that kind of how you see it? Do you see it as like two different, you know, pieces of the pie? What, you know, cause a lot of people are not necessarily living in debt, but I guess the majority probably are. Oh yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, over, you know, 80% of people are, are in debt right now. Yeah. I mean, you could look at it as two different pieces of the pie. For me, I got into all that debt because I was telling myself this story about I'll figure it out later. 
Like as long as I keep making, you know, well over six figures, like I'll figure it out later. And uh, I got to tell you, there was nothing I ever figured out with that plan. But once I saw the light at the end of the tunnel, when I really started to look at how I could live and spend to uh, guide myself to a debt-free life, now that motivated me. So when I had to cut back on things, when I had to temporarily deprive myself of some things, it wasn't that much of a sacrifice for me because I knew what I was doing. Now, certainly we're not the deprivationists. Um, the domain was taken, so we became the minimalist. I'm kidding. We're not about deprivation at all, obviously. But the thing is, is like, when, when it comes to temporary deprivation, if you have enough leverage, you can actually feel good about kind of staving off that impulse for a little bit. Certainly deprivation is not sustainable. Never recommend deprivation for life. But it's interesting when you do temporarily deprive yourself, you start to figure out what's actually important. And some of the things that you were depriving yourself from, actually, you realize you didn't need them at all in the first place. I mean, I think about uh, serious radio. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. It was something that I had, I listened to, I cut it out because I wanted to pay off debt, never brought it back because I realized it actually wasn't that important. I think that's all the questions that I got for you guys. This is awesome. If there's anything that you wanted to riff on or anything that you wanted to share. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things we could talk about real quick uh, that we didn't touch on about debt. So I think what happens with debt, which by the way, the average indebted household has just under a hundred thousand dollars in non-mortgage debt. It's $97,775, which is really made up of three main categories. You've got credit card debt, you have student loan debt, and then you have vehicle debt. All three of those types of debt, the best way to get out is to never get into debt in the first place. It's just like the best way to avoid clutter in your home is not to take the thing off the shelf and take it through the checkout line and put it on the credit card and bring it home. That's the best way to avoid clutter. But if you want to avoid financial clutter, then don't go into debt in the first place. Unfortunately, if you're someone like me who went into massive amounts of debt, at my corporate heyday, I had almost half a million dollars worth of debt. And the reason I did that was so I could look impressive. I had to have the auto loan or several auto loans to look impressive. I had to have the right clothes to impress the right people, right? And so I had to have the credit cards to buy those clothes. And of course, student loans, we are told this story that you have to go to college, obviously, which I would challenge that first off. But then if you decide you do want to go to college, there are plenty of ways to get through college completely debt free. Our friend of ours named Anthony O'Neill wrote a book called Debt Free Degree, and he shares some ways in that book that you can actually get through school without any debt. But if you get to the other side of that, and all of a sudden, you've got out of college, now you have auto debt, you've got credit card debt, you've got school debt. What do you do about it? You realize you're in a crater. And yes, the first thing you have to do in order to go whatever direction you want to go is you have to get out of that crater. So before you can invest in your future, before you can feel financially secure with a substantial emergency fund, before you can walk away from a career that feels soul-sucking to you, yeah, you're going to have to get out of debt. And you might have to temporarily deprive yourself of the things that you thought were important because it's so much more important to experience the freedom of being untethered to all that debt that is keeping you mired in the lifestyle that you don't even want to live in the first place. If you want to read about my packing party story, 
If you want to read about the uh, 16 rules for living with less, Josh had mentioned a couple, a few of them. You can head on over to theminimalists.com and everything's over there. Thank you so much, guys. This was awesome. Yeah. You're wonderful. Thank Thanks, you so man. much. Appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Have a good day.